1: Hello everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin and we are on to another episode. So we've talked often about the opioid epidemic and the cost of so many people's lives. Over 200,000 women have died from an opioid-related overdose since 1991. That's more than the population of many major cities, but in many ways, no one seems to know or very much care about it. And this is where our guest comes in today, Deborah Gontravinik. She is the writer and producer of 21 documentaries. 12 have been nominated for Emmys, and she has won six times. All of her work focuses on social justice issues. Her latest project is titled, Attention Must Be Paid, Women Lost in the Opioid Crisis. In this interview, Deborah is gonna talk about what motivated her to take on this documentary and this topic. She's going to share what her experience was like in creating it and doing these interviews of women who have been lost to the opioid epidemic and give them a voice and really advocate for women and care for women who have been marginalized by the treatment community. She's going to share a little bit of her experience in creating it, what she learned about it, and why it was so important for her to address specifically women and addiction treatment I would definitely encourage everyone to watch this documentary. It's great. The women in it share their story so openly. And as we were talking in the podcast, it is such a mix of sadness and tragedy and loss and also at the same time, so much hope as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. And if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind Podcast, you're getting a lot out of it, please share it with a friend or write a review on iTunes. It really does help the podcast get a lot of exposure. And now you can find us on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. So check that out as well. All right. Stay tuned for this interview. All right, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. My guest is Deborah Goncharvinik and she is the documentarian of the new documentary "Attention Must Be Paid: Women Lost in the Opioid Crisis." And Deborah, I just have to say, I, I watched the documentary yesterday, and it was really, really moving. And we'll we'll get into that more as we talk. But first, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and and your story?
0: Sure. So. As you said, I'm a documentarian, and I do not use that word lightly. This is actually our 21st documentary. I say our because I produce them with my husband. I'm the one that comes up with these areas or topics and write them and produce them, and my husband edits them and does a lot of the camera work as well. So we've really been doing this for way long time. We've touched on many different social justice issues. So we've done a documentary on intimate partner violence and healthcare in America or lack thereof, immigration and the plight of immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers. And about four years ago, in the face of what Little did I know it was going to be an increasing horror show in terms of deaths due to opioid use. I decided to do a documentary on the opioid crisis, and and right after I started it, I realized that I wanted to focus on women because women are almost absent in terms of the media coverage of what's going right. on, and when when people have talked to me about it and have seen the film. And they've said, I can't believe we've lost 200,000 women since 1999. That's, it's actually over 200,000, but it's rounded out. And in focus groups, people said, we actually had no idea. They said to me in the beginning, all they did was sit there with their mouth open going, how did I not know? How did we not know? And yeah. I said, don't feel badly. Media doesn't seem to ever mention women in the in the stories.
1: Yeah, a, a very almost invisible and, and not seen at all. What was the spark that started to say, you know, I, I want to do this about the opioid crisis? And I see it kind of evolved to, you know, like I'm going to focus on women specifically, but I'm wondering what pulled you to that?
0: You know, I I just feel... Well, as I said, I've, I, I've looked at many of the major, what I consider to be major social justice issues in this country over the last you know, 15 years, and I think I was drawn to this for a number of reasons. A, because I just think that it was way underreported, and B, I really believe that they're but for the grace of God. I think that there's a huge amount of genetics involved, but there is a huge amount of being in kind of the wrong place at the wrong time. What I mean by that is people were given, women were given prescription drugs because they had, you know, a backache, a tooth extracted, whatever it was, never being told that if they kept on taking these for the prescribed amount, this isn't about people abusing, the word abuse is now not particularly politically correct, but this is about women who, by and large, took the prescription from the doctor who they trusted, and at the end of that prescription, they may not have even realized it. But when their pills were done, they didn't feel so good. So right. they wanted to get more pills. I think that could have been me, without a doubt. I think many, many years ago, I would say lifetimes ago, I think I, as a you know young woman, I, I ventured way too close to the sun. Right. They could have easily gone another way.
1: So you could see yourself in, in these women as Absolutely. well. And one of the things when I was watching the documentary that just struck me so much was first that, you know, there, there's so much sadness and, and tragedy and loss mm-hmm. in it, but also these women who were willing to come forward and share their story openly was just, I, I thought was so inspiring and powerful. I mean, what incredible courage to to come forward and tell their story? Because I, I think, like you said, there's so many other women out there who I think will see this documentary and relate and understand Like, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. I'm kind of wondering, as you were making this documentary, how did you start to find these women who were willing to to talk about it and share their story? And how did that evolve?
0: Well, I think the what's so great about the point that you just made is that the idea of women coming forward is a big thing because uh, addiction is so stigmatized. Yeah, It's such, you know, it's the third rail, so to speak. And for women, the stigma associated with opioid use is even greater than for men. You know, for a man, you say, well, Uncle Charlie is like that. But for a woman and for a mother, oh, my goodness, the stigma is horrible. So the point you're making is these women were put aside the concern or the worry about someone's perception of them to speak their truth and their story in order to help other women, and and they did. And I think it's we have women who are, as you saw it, you know, oh, of an older, I'm not going to say old, <laughs> of, an, uh, of uh, you know, perhaps older years. And we have women who are of younger years, women from all across of demographics, old and young, from Native American to Black women to white women. It is equal opportunity problem.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I, as I was watching, I was thinking about was how, a lot of these people who are struggling with with this addiction and physical dependence on these opioids, it's just so invisible. Like you wouldn't know if you didn't know them well, you might not even know that this is what they're struggling with and how painful it is for them because they're going about their life and you wouldn't see it. It's almost like it's invisible, but it's right there.
0: Right. Well, years ago when I was doing the documentary on intimate partner violence, which was a great documentary, it's called I Believe You, I was at a United Nations event and the Reverend Marie Fortune was speaking and she said, if you're a victim of intimate partner violence, please stand up. So maybe a couple of people sit up. And then she said, if you know of anyone who is a victim, stand up. And then more people sit up. And then she said, and everyone else stand up because even though you don't think you know, you actually do know someone who is a victim. And that's the case with opioids. You don't know it. It's not apparent to you. But somebody was given some pills for a tooth extraction or for their back. They were in a car accident. So they hurt their back. And they were given these pills, and then they started taking them. and then when as Susie says, when she stopped, she didn't feel so good. you know right. yeah, so you go ahead and you take a pill and you feel better, and it's no longer addressing the issue you had. You need to take them because it you're maintaining. Nobody's getting euphoria here. Nobody's getting a high people are just trying not to go into withdrawal, trying not to be in pain.
1: Yeah, their body has adjusted to to that Absolutely. opioid. And if as soon as they get off, all of their bodies just, they're going into the withdrawal, they're, they're feeling all that pain, they're feeling miserable, they're feeling horrible, and they, they get that psychological dependence on it. I think that one of your experts was talking about His name was Marvin was talking about that and and seeing how that plays out. And it goes so much against the stereotype that we we think of someone who is struggling with these opioids, how it's it's just so much bigger out there than we know.
0: Right. And, you know, Marv Seppala, who was the medical director at Betty Ford Hazleton for, you know, 20, 25 years, you know, says it. It's not, you know, he answers the question, people who don't know say, well, why can't they just stop? You lost your home or your whatever. Why don't you just stop? You can't, because you can't just stop. You physically can't just stop. And your brain, there's a lot of evidence that your brain has been somewhat rewired. I know people think that that's just an excuse. But that's evidence based that there's a rewiring. So you don't, are not working in the same manner that you and I who are talking about it are, are, are talking. Otherwise, why would people do lose, you know, people lose everything because they can't control it. It's, it's no longer something that can be uh, controlled. The brain's been rewired to demand those drugs.
1: And as he was saying in there, it becomes more rewired to the drug becomes more important than life itself. Yeah. What you yeah. see in these stories of these women, it's 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 so heartbreaking to see their story and their struggle to get support. I think that's right. the, the other thing that, that the lack of support out there, good quality treatment and support for addiction especially for women, hard to find a safe place to be able to get that, to get that support.
0: Absolutely. I think that one of the most depressing parts of doing the documentary was just the lack of support for women. So most of the rehabilitation facilities that one could go to, I mean, most is an understatement. The maj- way past the majority, 75% or more don't have any program specifically designed for women. So and then if imagine if you're a mother and if you have children, Oh, yeah. my goodness. Only 1% of all the facilities in the United States will even take you. So people are telling you you need to get help. Well, where would that be if only 1% of the facilities would take you? So the lack of resources for women is, is there's no other word to describe it. It's really shocking. Yeah. And when a, a facility is good, like I, I've been working with uh, Andre Jones, who heads up, Horizons, which is out of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And that's a phenomenal facility because that sees the women holistically if they're in a pregnancy or um, if they have children and they're dealing with both the medical issues, the, the psychological issues, trauma issues, if they're there and takes them through because you can't just get the person off the drugs physically and think, OK, well, we're done with that no people need behavioral therapy and and you know psychological therapy they need a community they need support
1: and understanding this as as a as a chronic condition
0: right. absolutely
1: and removing the the stigma around that you know just seeing these women just share their story uh, just as human beings just as people who have this chronic condition and uh, of no fault of their own introduced to these drugs. And, and we, you know, we can go into the history of how that all happened and that that's its own, that's its own documentary right there. Absolutely. You know, where they were following the advice of doctors who were telling them, you know, this is what you need to do for this. And then all of a sudden they're in this space and it's just, it it just breaks my heart.
0: Yeah. And let me be clear. So most of the women in the film were given prescriptions and then They found themselves, in many cases, not knowing that that's really what had happened, that they had been addicted and it, you know, spiraled. But there were some women who were given doctors, you know, prescriptions for 10, 15 years. You know, there are two women who were kept on opioids for you know, just an astonishing amount of years. But I do want to say that there are also, and I'm not judging it, I think it's real. I think it's me, that there was a time in most people's youth that people tried, you know, drugs, whether it was pot or cocaine or pills. You know, that was that time in many of our youths where we experimented. Thankfully, I can say, Opioids were not something that uh, you know was being experimented when I was in college and graduate school, but for those people who did experiment in high school, they're no more to be judged than the people who were given a prescription. The fact is that Big Pharma knew that these things were really dangerous. young people didn't realize that they took pill today and tomorrow and maybe. A couple more days that they they would be feeling uncomfortable. Five days of pills. Five days of pills. Right. You stop stop taking them, and you're gonna feel uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, and how fast that can be, especially for the young brain. How fast that can be just addictive, and then just take over their whole life. What was it like for you to interview these these women and these guests and talk to them and and hear their story?
0: Well, I've done a lot, a lot of interviews. And I think when I talk about documentary filmmaking and I've been asked to speak at colleges and universities about it, and I always say this joke, but really isn't a joke, which is I'm there to speak about documentary filmmaking as a career. And my first remark is, don't go into don't go into right. this for a career <laughs> I and i say that's a joke but not really and the reason i say that is because few documentarians make the money of let's say michael moore okay or you know ken burns right
1: and right, yeah.
0: once you get away from that high financial level it's a very very a difficult job to raise the funding for what it takes to make a documentary. However, I say, after I say, don't go into this career, I also follow it by saying, however, if that's the only way you feel you can repair the world, which is an expression in Judaism, tikkun olam. If that's the only way you can address the problems with the world, then you know go ahead. And the other thing I say is I meet the very best people. I think one of the yeah. most wonderful parts of 21 documentaries is I've met just really wonderful people that I'm still friends with. From the first documentary. So these women now, the women that were in the documentary, I'm not going to say I'm, I've remained close with all of them, but I've remained close with um, half of them. And I will be speaking out at uh, Washington State University with Rosa Maldonado. And I spoke at another event with Kay Ellis. And I will be speaking at ASAM with Rebecca who is in the Baltimore area.
1: That's awesome. How how did you uh, approach him and say, hey, would you be willing to share your story on this huge stage and just really, I mean, really no holds barred, put it all out there and be so vulnerable in this medium?
0: Well, what happens is, you know, I, I do a lot of research and I'm in contact with a lot of people and through people, I hear about someone else and, you know, it's a—it's kind of a long process. And eventually I write them an email and then I do an kind of interview on the phone and everybody understands that this is going to be seen. So the film exists as a feature film now. It's being cut into two one-hour programs that will air on ABC-affiliated stations. So it's going to be seen I will point out, you bring up a, such an interesting point, and I won't say the names, but there were some people in one of the places who turned around afterwards and called me and said, even though they had signed a release and all this, one of them in particular called and said that she thought about it and she does not want to do it. Wow. And I said, I was really disappointed. Because, you know, her story was very compelling and, you know, I spent a lot of time going over this with her and she'd want to do it. She sat for the interview. We spent all this time. But after the fact, she thought about it and decided she didn't want to do it. And I'm not about to say to her, well, I have a release from you. So and I have the tape. That's not that's not what we're about. That's That's not what this is about. We just went, okay. That's really a shame. And, and, it cost us time
1: and yeah, and it takes so much courage to to put this out there and to be so vulnerable,
0: right? Yeah, I and you know I for the documentary's sake, I felt really badly that we lost that story, but for her sake. I was you know I said, you everyone's gotta do what they have to do, and the point of this documentary is not about causing anyone pain um yeah. or, you know that would be just horrible for me to consider, so we just didn't do it and and you you know God has a very interesting way of working, and I say that so that you know this was a story that I really liked, and I thought was. You know, pointed out something very uh, specifically, but on the flip side, we were flying home from shooting the Muckle shoot at the Muckle shoot reservation outside of Seattle, and we were on the red eye. I I was so uncomfortable. My back. I I was making very bad jokes to myself, saying I need opioids. I mean, it was. I was really uncomfortable. And so I was walking around the plane because it was, you know, two in the morning. And so I went to the front of the plane. I was speaking to the flight attendant and she said, what are you doing in this area? And I said, told her what I was doing. And she said to me, oh, my goodness, my friend lost her daughter last year to yeah. an overdose. And she had just had a month after her baby was born. And we talked about it and she said, could I have my friend contact you. I said, sure. But we really had finished, I thought we had finished filming. I gave her my card and a month later, Juanita, the mother of Adrian, Mm -hmm. called me and her story was so devastating to me and so heartbreaking that even though we had supposedly finished, we decided to do this whole story back out in Chicago, uh, in California, in Chico.
1: I, I am so glad you did. And and it is amazing. I think when we put this work out there, the things that come from this, because this opioid epidemic is impacting so many people and there's so much loss.
0: So much loss.
1: I hear that all the time, you know, doing this podcast, The Addicted Mind, you know, you just get People emailing, you know, about their loss, their loss of their their parents, their loss of their own children, and Juanita's story was just so it was heartbreaking to watch. And you know, there's a line in there where she's talking to her daughter, and she says her daughter at the time was trying to save her baby, and she goes, "I'm also trying to save my baby," and I'm just like, "You're my baby," and I'm just thinking of, you know, I have my own children, they're young, but I'm just thinking of of how incredibly hard that is. And my heart just, just went out to her.
0: Yeah, Juanita, you know, from an outside perspective, I mean, she did everything imaginable to, to save, just everything imaginable. And she was so there for her. But there's a lot wrong with the rehabilitation facilities and the way they're structured as a business model that is taking people in for 30 days and then, you know, they're out. And if there's not, a as you pointed out, this is a chronic disease. If you don't have continuity of care, 30 days. Yeah. And what happens is they, they haven't been using. So there's no tolerance. And then if they do use and at this point, everything's cut with fentanyl. So it's like, it's the most explicit recipe for tragedy one could imagine.
1: Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And and you see that over and over again. What other, uh, with, with the documentary and, and doing this, how long did it take for you to put this all together and, and to, you know, edit it and and film it? And how long did that take?
0: Well, it took longer than any other documentary we've done. We've spent more time on this documentary. We, we're in it now for about, you know, three and a half to four years, because wow. to be fair, the pandemic came. So that stopped everything. And then even before the vaccine, the vaccinations were available, we decided to drive out, not fly, we weren't flying yet, but we drove out to Peoria, Illinois, where we filmed the stories of Susie and Sister Judith Ann Duval. And just to, uh, to bring this full circle, I met Sister Judith Anne Deval in a documentary I did about seven to nine years ago on healthcare in in America, or the lack thereof. And we had such a connection. We've stayed pen pals for, you know, all these years. I send her pictures of churches wherever I go. I take pictures for her. And we remain really, really good friends. So. I wanted, I figured, oh, what a great way to get out to see Sister Judith Ann. And I thought the stories out there were really compelling because they were of women who had been given prescriptions. One was it, one, which is going to be in the ABC two part, was a nurse. She wasn't in the the full feature because I just had too much. But one was a nurse who had her knee surgery. And so she was given. Um, fentanyl, For she was on fentanyl for years and years. And the other wow. one was Susie, who was also on fentanyl patches for years and years prescribed by the doctors.
1: And to watch their story, to see how that just, it just slowly took their ability to function away as they built more tolerance and as they needed right. more. That one of them had to retire early. And right. it was just so tragic to see that but to also see them in recovery too yes. and get and that there's hope out there and that there's treatment and i think seeing these women also overcome the obstacles that they faced and and the difficulty in just getting recovery is amazing as well
0: i think i mean each one of them it's so funny. People ask me this question about my documentaries, which one do you like the best? And like ch- your children, you can't, you don't really want to say which one. And that's how I feel about these stories. Like which one of the stories do I like the best? I go, well, okay, maybe, no, I can't do that one because I love that one. The We haven't mentioned Carol, who is... I just think is so eloquent or Barbara who, who were addicted to the age of 50. So, you know, that's a shout out to people who think that they, things can't change. These are two women from very different walks of life. You know, Barbara using, I never even knew there was a thing about drinking, of being involved with cough syrup. I I didn't even, wasn't aware that that. And then you have Carol, who was in active heroin use till 50. Now she's, for the last 20 some odd years, she's been, you know, involved in the recovery movement as somebody who offers help and sustenance. And she has an amazing, both of them have amazing lives.
1: It is. And that's what's so hopeful about it too, is that there is hope. And I think, you know, when you hear these women's stories in here, it just makes them human beings, not someone struggling with an addiction, not just human beings who are amazing people that give so much back to the world. And, And it was just, I think it, really works to destigmatize that image and and shows the humanity of it I guess.
0: Yeah, I uh, thank you. I, I that's what we try to do. As I said earlier, it could be me, it could be you, it could be anyone. Yep. It's not Absolutely. this the other this other person who can't control themselves. No, it could be anyone. Everyone with their hopes, dreams, every one of the women have amazing stories of hopes and dreams that now many of them in recovery are seeing come to fruition. And and just, you know, the happiness that they are able to experience. Unfortunately, there are some of the women that did not win their battle. Yeah. Somebody asked me why I ended the film the way we did because there's so much hope in the film. And there is. But I can't, you know, sugarcoat this and say, well, everything's okay. Look, yeah. women can be in recovery. I have to also say, but there are some women who the system has failed them. It, it yeah. failed them. It absolutely failed Adrian, without a doubt. Yes. And yeah. it failed her baby, who was a month old, by failing her and who suffers, you know, that little boy who doesn't have his mother, that's who suffers. And so we perpetuate this generationally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I think that's so important. You know, it's holding on to hope and also looking at the reality of it at the same time. Yes. And being able and, to see and both.
0: One of the things that I want to say about the film is that I really want the film to have an impact in a very specific way. I want people to see the film and not only be moved, but I want them to see the film and say, wait a second, yeah, she's right. There's $54 billion that is part of the opioid litigation settlements that is coming to the states. $54 billion. I have to tell you, I'm really not good on grasping what a billion is. So $54 billion is like, So where is that money going? How much of it is going to women-specific resources? Because those resources are at really a really low level. If I'm saying only 1% of recovery facilities will take you if you have a child, 1%, how how does that work? So I'm hoping that people seeing it will call up, I'm not asking for a lot, call up their elected official and just say, hey, you know, what's happening with the opioid settlement monies? And I want to make my voice known that things have to go for women resources, that, you know, women, re- women's resources cannot be marginalized and at the bottom layer. They have to be brought up to the top. They have to be. Otherwise, generation upon generation, we're visiting this tragedy on the future
1: yeah absolutely thank you for saying that we're getting to our time here so i usually like to ask like one question before we end and that's just like if maybe there's someone out there struggling and you could say one thing to them what would you want to tell them
0: i love that question i love the question because it's a question i always i ask in an interview and i ask And I and I remember in a documentary we did that I mentioned about intimate partner violence. I looked at a woman who was had told her story and she was in her, you know, 70 mid 70s when I interviewed her. And and she had a story of emotional abuse and eventually she had divorced her husband and so forth and so on. But she looked directly into the camera and she said, when I asked her, what would you tell someone who's in um, an abusive situation now. And she looked at the camera and she said, You can do it. Know that you can get out. You can live and get to the other side of it. And she said, You know, it may not seem that way now. It didn't seem that way for her but you can. And that's what I would say to anyone. It may sound like blah, 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 because I understand completely there's physical issues going on with your body. And, you know, what did Kay say? They say you can't die from withdrawals, but it sure feels like you're going to. So I am not making light of that. I'm saying that I've met a lot of women and you can make it through to the other side. I'm not saying it's not going to be a nightmare. I am saying that life is going to be full of a lot of laughter and joy, but you have to take that first step. And once again, that first step is hard. It's going to seem maybe impossible because where to go, where to find, you know, resources, but somehow you've got to pull that strength out of the, your inner soul and make that first move and then I think people, women will see that there will be people on the other side extending right. their hand, willing to really help them and hang in with them.
1: Oh, thank you, Deborah. I think your documentary is uh, going to have such a profound impact. I'm excited that it's going to be released on ABC as well in the coming months. I think in... Uh, May and September.
0: May. It will be under the title, a different title, so not to confuse anyone. It will be called Listen to the Silence, Women Trapped in the Opioid Epidemic. It will start airing on ABC Affiliates Sunday, May 20th. People will have to look to see where it airs in their particular city. And if they go to our website. Once we start having a listing of the stations, we put that up as well.
1: And so, name um, your website so that people can go.
0: It's Diva, D I V A, Diva, D-I-V-A divacommunications.com. And, you know, people can troll around. They can see the trailer to the film, the trailer to the feature-length film. And as I said, it's March now, but starting next month, we'll have a list of all the stations that will be updated regularly so so people can see it.
1: Awesome. And I would encourage everybody to check it out. And I will put all the links in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com, so you can just go there and – uh you know, find the links if you, if you need them, but I would encourage everybody to check out the documentary. It's super powerful. And Deborah, thank you so much for bringing these voices to everyone. It's, it's, it's just a great thing for the world.
0: and Thank you so much for giving me this time. You know, I can talk about this documentary and I can talk about these women for hours. I love them all. And I just feel like everyone has to do their part to help each other and help these women. And as I said, call on your elected official, just make one phone call, that's all. And just ask, where are these monies going to? 54 billion, every state's getting a piece of that pie. Right. Those monies have to go for resources for women. And so thank you so much for the time today. It's been great.
1: Thank you, Deborah. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. Definitely encourage you to check out the documentary, Attention Must Be Paid, Women Lost in the Opioid Crisis. And don't forget, as Deborah said, this will also air on ABC under the title, Listen to the Silence, Women Trapped in the Opioid Epidemic. So I would definitely encourage you to check that out as well. And a final thought, there are so many people out there struggling with these issues, watching this documentary can help anyone understand how this disease impacts others and they're more likely than not people in your life that are struggling with just this thing. So if you understand, you can help them. And if you're struggling yourself, I hope this documentary gives you hope that you're not alone, that this gives you hope that there is help out there. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode.